you have a Bible, you can turn it to Genesis 1. Uh, it will not be hard to find, probably. It's the very first book of the Bible, uh, very first chapter. We're going to look at the very first verses, even this morning. Um, but I want to say a couple things before uh, we turn our attention to it. Uh, I try to say this every Sunday, but thank you. Uh, for those of you who are a regular part of our church, thank you for your generosity uh, to the general fund of our church and the, the finances that the Lord gives to you, that you are generous in return and helping pool those together and fund the mission of people like the Sotos that we've sent out from our church and be able to do things like this and to uh, establish ministries here in our community. So thank you for your ongoing generosity. Uh, we're not meeting inside, obviously, like normal. I know some of you sometimes will drop offerings in the offering boxes that are at the back of our auditorium if you want to do that this morning they're still in the building they're in the lobby uh, you can find those and, and place them in there as always you could donate online you can do it via mail text uh, you can check out our website if you'd like to do that uh, one other thing I wanted to point out a couple things related to Genesis and sorry for the wind blowing uh, but uh, the, a few things related to Genesis. Uh, we're starting this book of the Bible this morning, and we're going to go through it for quite a while. I'll explain some more about that in a bit. Um, but one thing we do as a church, anytime we start going through a book of the Bible, which is kind of our normal deal that we do, we have recently, in recent years, been trying to buy these things called scripture journals and make them available to you at cost. Basically what it is, if you open them up, on one side of the book, it has the text of scripture of that book, of the Bible, and then on the other side, it just has blank lines. And so the idea is you could be reading through that yourself at home if you want and take notes or if you just want to bring it to church with you. And as you're listening along, trying to track along, there's spaces there where you could jot down notes to pray about, to think about, to talk with people about later. If you'd like to get one of these, uh, we have a lot to start with. We can always order more, but they're in the lobby of our church. We have a little bookstore. Uh, if you've never been in there and there's a little counter there and they're in there, uh, you can grab one of those. There's a little envelope where you could either put check or cash, something like that, and leave that in a box in there. But we'll have those available for the next several weeks. There's also some things in there uh, for children, some books and resources related to Genesis for children. So if you have uh, children in your family or grandchildren you'd like to go through uh, some of that with, those are available in there as well. So you can check those out. All right. So if you have found, made the long journey to Genesis 1, uh, we're going to start here this morning. And I wanted to... Uh, ask a question of you. I was talking to my kids about this, just kind of doing a thought experiment uh, with them. And what I was asking them, and I'd be curious, you don't need to answer this out loud, but what I was asking them was, if you had to tell the story of your own life, like you were going to write what people call an autobiography, I was asking them, where would you begin your telling of your story? Like what event, what moment, where would you start the telling of it? And I think most of us, uh, our instinct would be to say, I would start the day I was born. Uh, that would make the most logical sense. Even though I don't remember it, I could tell about it and uh, say the day I was born and then start from there. Uh, but surely, and just even in talking to them as young children, they were grasping this. I was saying to them, surely, if you're really going to tell the story of you, there would be things that happened before you were born that are important to who you are, right? Uh, backstory to who you are, that would be helpful for people to know. Uh, things that might help inform who you are, uh, what you are like, uh, things about your parents, for example, your grandparents, the town you grew up in, the nation you grew up in, things like that. Uh, you could always go further back. And it begs the question, not just of our story, like as an individual, but where do you start the telling of any story? Like, where do you begin? 
Uh, where do you start? It's been controversial even in our country, and I'm not going to drop bombs here, but just to think of how do you tell the story of our country? Like, it has been a debate recently. Do you start it in 1776 and the, the Declaration of Independence? Or do you go back further and some people say we should start in 1619 with the start of slavery? Some people, if you're like me, you learned a little poem when you were a kid about Christopher Columbus and 1492. And they would say, no, start there when uh, European explorers started to come. And then, but then you think, what about Native Americans and the tribes that lived here? How far back do you go to tell the story even just of our nation? Every story, like every story you can imagine, every true story has a backstory, right? And every backstory has significance. None of it's irrelevant. It all has significance. So I would suggest to you to understand yourself, uh, to understand our world, to understand our existence, to understand our purpose. We need to go back much further than just how stories often start of long, long ago. We need to go past that. Uh, we need to go not just find a beginning of our story, but to find the beginning. That's where we need to go back. If we're really going to understand everything about who we are in this world that we live in, we need to go back to the or the beginning. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read just the first two verses of the Bible this morning. Uh, and uh, then I'll give uh, some intro of what we're going to talk about this morning. And then we will go through this and see what the Lord has to say to us through it. Uh, so oh, Lord willing, over the next about nine months, I know for some people that may sound insanely long, uh, but we're going to take nine months or a whole school year roughly to go through not even the whole book of Genesis, uh, that's 50 chapters, but to go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we're going to go very slow uh, through this book of the Bible, and our typical approach as a church family is to start in a book of the Bible, start at the beginning of it, and slowly, sequentially work our way through it till we get to the end. We're not going to make it to the end of Genesis. That would probably take several years. Maybe eventually we'll do that. That would be wonderful if Jesus stays in heaven. Uh, but our, our plan is going to be to go through the first 11 chapters uh, this school year. But what we've normally been doing as a church in recent years at least, and maybe always, is we try to take, before we fully launch into a book, we take one Sunday and try to give an introduction to it. Try to help see what are the themes. Why are we even doing this? What's the point of this book of the Bible right now? Share some of the relevance of it. And so that that's mostly what we're going to be doing this morning. But I want to read for you the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1, and you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. By the way, we usually use, the, we don't have rules about this, but we usually use in preaching, we use a copy of the Bible called the ESV. There's nothing like special or uniquely divinely ordained by God about the ESV. We just like it, and it's consistent. So that's what I'm going to be reading from. If yours sounds different, that is okay, uh, but it should be pretty similar, and these will be very familiar too many of you. Some of you could just recite this from memory, uh, but I'm going to read this. This is how the Word of God begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the Word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of His Word. 
I have three goals this morning uh, that hopefully we can accomplish in the time we have together. One is just going to be to give you a brief introduction to this book, some background of it if you don't know much about it. Uh, second is going to be to explain the timing of why we're doing this now. Why are we taking a whole school year and going through Genesis 1 through 11? And then the third goal is going to be to at least give some simple ideas of how we should be interpreting Genesis because it's a controversial book. Uh, so I want to lay some groundwork of how should we interpret it? What are some principles that we should have in our minds and hearts as we read through this, as we hear it preached in the months ahead? So first, wanted to give you a brief introduction to this book without it just sounding like a, a college or seminary class. Uh, I want to give you some information that will be helpful uh, for the, 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 year, the year ahead of us. So first is why it's called Genesis. Genesis just means beginning. If this isn't rocket science, we'll even use that sometimes like the genesis of fill in the blank means the start of it, right? That's how it came to be. And so this book of the Bible is called Genesis because it's about the beginning of all things, the beginning of our universe, of our world, of humanity, of all the above. It is the beginning. Uh, so that's why it is called what it is. A, a second question that you may wonder, even as we start reading it, is who wrote this? Like who penned this? Who put it down to paper or to scroll, however they did it when they originally wrote it? My simplest answer uh, to you, if you're asking who wrote it, would be, and hear me out on this, is that God did. God is the author of this. Any book you flip open to in the Bible, the simplest, most important answer of who wrote this is that God did. By the Holy Spirit, he inspired, though, human authors to write these things. So he didn't just open the heavens and speak divinely uh, through the air to us. He inspired men to write inspired words of Scripture. And so the human that we believe that he used to write the, this book of Genesis, and really the first five books of the Bible, is Moses. Uh, now there are theories that abound. I will not bore you with them. There are theories that abound of who people think actually wrote Genesis or how it came to be or they'll suggest multiple people kind of compiled it over centuries of time into what we have now. I do not buy that, mostly because we have later biblical authors who talk about these books of the Bible, and they refer to them as being from Moses, being written by Moses. And so if I have to choose between the sage people of our day and the spirit-inspired people who wrote the Bible itself, I'm going with that second category of people all day long, uh, that they say that Moses wrote this, that he was the human instrument that God used to record what we just read and the five books of the Bible that follow. So if he was the one who wrote this, if he's the one who uh, inscribed it, wrote it down, who was he writing it for originally? He didn't write it in 2023, right? He wrote it long ago. As best as we can tell, the people that he was originally writing Genesis for, and this will have relevance for us, was that he was writing it originally for the people of Israel who had just been freed from slavery in Egypt. Like you read through their story that comes later in the book of Exodus and they're miraculously delivered out of slavery in Egypt and they're about to head into the promised land, to the land that God has promised to Abraham and Isaac and their descendants. They're finally about to come into this land, but they've been in slavery for four centuries as a people. 
All these events that happened in Genesis had happened long before their slavery, right? Long before they were ever freed, but they were distant memories. They were older than our country is, right? Like then they, they were ancient, these stories, and they had been in Egypt for centuries, and it's like they needed to be reminded of the truth. They needed to be reminded not just where did we as Israelites come from, but where did we as humans come from? And so Moses is helping them to remember that, to reclaim that, to know where they have come from. If you read through these first five books of the Bible, most of it is forward-looking. Like it's God giving law to them about as they go into the land, he's saying, this is how you should live. This is how you should operate as a society and even amongst the people that you're going to live among or live around. But before he does that, before he gets to the law of Exodus and Leviticus and recaps it later in Deuteronomy, before he gets to that, before he helps them look ahead in time, he has them first look back in time, right? To remember where did we come from? How did we get here? How do, why do we even exist? He looks backward before he looks forward. We're going to take uh, the first 11 chapters of this book, not just because that's a random number, or that's just how much time we'll have, but the first 11 chapters, if you read through Genesis, they're very distinct from the chapters that follow. When you hit chapter 12, uh, you get to the life of Abraham, who's like the patriarch of Israel. He's the one God gives all these massive promises to. His life really begins in earnest in chapter 12, and our record of him Chapter 11 and earlier, what we're going to be covering is everything leading up to that, uh, from the beginning of time up through Abraham. And so we're going to try to tackle these first 11 chapters, and we're going to do our best to do it. So that's a little brief introduction. I want to explain the timing of why we're doing this now, because Genesis has been in our Bibles the entire existence of our church, and to my knowledge, I don't think we've ever gone through it systematically uh, to try to preach it. And so I wanted to at least explain some of the heart of the pastors and why we think this would be helpful, why we think this is important to go through. The main reason is this, is, and I, I think you'll track along with this, is that our situation today, like our setting today that we're living in right now, is not immensely different in some ways from those ancient Israelites uh, who had just been set free from their slavery in Egypt. And this is, this is what I mean, and see if you can follow with me. Imagine being those Israelites who are in the wilderness, who are about to finally go into the land of promise. They were Israelites. They had heard these stories, right? The, these stories that are recorded for us in Genesis, they had heard these. They had been passed down to them by their parents, grandparents, uh, in some way, shape, or form for centuries. They'd been passed down to them. But they had been in slavery in a foreign land for 400 years. And that has an effect on a people, right? Like no matter how hard they're trying to retain these stories and remember their identity and who they are, they had lived under the thumb of the Egyptians for 400 years. Uh, and a people who think very differently about the world and about history and who believe in all sorts of gods and who, who have this different way of viewing the world. And that has slowly seeped in to the Israelites, that it slowly affected how they viewed themselves and what they were tempted to believe or not believe about this world and about God. I could imagine all sorts of little Israelite children asking their parents, and I think Moses anticipated this, or maybe he heard it, uh, them asking their parents, is all this stuff that we've heard about Adam and the garden and about Noah and the ark and about Abraham and these promises that God supposedly made to him, is all of that really true? Because that seems so ancient to us. Like that seems so long ago. And everybody around us 
thinks differently. Like none of these people around us actually believe this stuff. Like we're the minority. Uh, shouldn't we, if we're going to keep living here, shouldn't we just blend in with them? Like shouldn't we just believe like what they believe? And they had started to be influenced by the worldview of the Egyptians. And I want you to then think today, not that we're exactly the same, okay? But the, the Western world, I would say, uh, the Western world for centuries has had a worldview that even, I think, non-Christians uh, have had a view of the world that was largely based on principles of the Bible. Uh, that, that, that we as a culture had, b- had these beliefs about the existence of God. We had these beliefs about uh, the, the dignity of human beings about the fact that we're eternal creatures, right? About the fact that there is sin, about the fact that there is a judgment, about the fact that there will be a resurrection. We had these views in our minds and hearts as societies and as Western cultures. We had these ideas uh, that were true. And I I think even if people didn't know why they believed those things, they still believed them. I'm not saying that they were Christians, that they're born again, uh, that they have the Spirit of God, but their view of reality largely was based on biblical principles. Uh, That was true, has been true, but in recent decades, I would say, and maybe you could push it back, like where do we start the story, right? But in recent decades, even recent centuries, I think that has slowly started to get eroded. That some of the things that people used to assume about God and about our world and about us and about morals and about eternity and about sin, all these sorts of things, those, those have slowly gotten eroded. They've slowly been washed away, or sometimes they've just been chucked, like people have willfully just abandoned them and chucked them by the wayside. And those foundational beliefs uh, have, have gone away in large part. And I, I would say to you, as a, our church family, that in today's culture, especially as Christians, we now need to establish what we used to assume right? We used to assume people just had these certain views of God, these certain views of themselves, these certain views of reality, but we can't assume that anymore. We need to actually establish it for our own sake. Think, why do we believe this? Why do we think these things? Uh, And we need to help inform other people as well. And so these first 11 chapters of the Bible are going to get to do just that. They're going to help us establish or reestablish some of these views about reality. We're going to cover, I'll just give you a quick sampling of what sub Subjects we'll get to hit over these 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, these fundamental foundational things. We'll get to hear and see the existence of God, right? That there actually is a God. In the beginning, God created, right? That there is a God. We're going to get to see the, the basic principle of God as creator, and us as creatures, right? That, that there is a creator and there are creatures. That is huge, right? We're going to get to learn about the dignity of human beings, uh, that we have the image of God in ways that animals do not, that no other creatures do. We have uh, dignity. We're going to get to learn about the pattern of Sabbath rest and how God made us with rhythms as human beings that are for our good. We're going to learn about care for creation, for the world that God made, that he put us in it to work it and keep it and tend to it, to have dominion over it, those sorts of things. We're going to get to learn about uh, controversial things in our day about how gender actually is a binary, right? How there actually is male and female. We're going to get to see how marriage is a good thing and what God's definition of marriage actually is. We're going to get to see the goodness of childbearing, the goodness of work, right? We're going to get to see the seriousness of sin. 
the reality of the God's judgment for sin, but also, praise God, we are going to get to see again and again the reality of the mercy and the grace of God. We're going to get to see all those things. Uh, things that people used to assume in our culture, we're going to get to now establish and see from the scriptures themselves. And the way we're going to establish those is by listening to our Creator right? We don't just establish these things ourselves. We don't just come up with these ideas because we think they're good, right? We listen to the one who made us. We listen to what he has said about us and about our world. We do not write our own stories, right? As individuals, as cultures, we don't just write our own stories. We don't just self-establish reality. We listen to our creator. And our aim as God's people, and hear me on this, is not just to listen to the people who've come before us, not just listen to our predecessors, just listen to our ancestors, because they could have been wrong, right? Our goal as God's people is not just to be conservative, to just conserve what the generation before us pass on to us, but more than that is to be biblical. That is what our goal is. As we're thinking about what is true, what is ultimate, is to come to the Bible itself. And hopefully the generations that have preceded us have told us the truth. But our aim must be to always go back to the beginning to see what our Creator says about us and about our world, about eternity, all these sorts of things. And if we do anything else, if we're trying to establish a view of the world in any other way, then going back and listening to our creator, it's like we're going to be trying to just build a foundation in the air, right? Like where we're just going to be, oh, this is a good idea. This makes sense. Let's put this here and this idea here. And this seems right to me. But if there's nothing underneath it that is eternal and permanent, you are just trying to build a structure of thought that is free floating and that will collapse, right? There is no foundation under it. The only way to have a worldview that makes sense, that actually stands, is by going back to the one who created us and letting him tell us our story, right? Science can't fully tell us our story, right? Sociologists can't fully tell us our story. Politicians surely cannot fully tell us our story, but our creator can. He's the only one who can, and he does tell us our story. Uh, there's a, a commentator from a few centuries back named Matthew Henry who said this. He said that the first verse of the Bible gives us a sure and better, a more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosophers. The lively faith of humble Christians understands this matter better than the elevated fancy of the greatest minds. I love that. He's trying to say, man, when we're wanting to go back to understand who we are, what our life is about, what eternity is all about, what ultimately is right and true, where we go is not just to a classroom or to a philosopher or to some author. Who we go to is God himself, and he has spoken to us. He has told us the truth about all of these things. And so that's what we're going to be doing this school year is going back to the beginning and listening to our creator, letting him tell us our story, letting him tell us what is true, letting him tell us what is ultimate. But how does he speak it? How is he communicating to us through Moses? Because there's different types of literature throughout the Bible, right? There's different ways. There's poems. There's prophecies. There's just historical records. There's all these different types of scripture uh, that we have. And so I wanted to think together briefly this morning of some basic principles for how we're going to approach the book of Genesis. Because it's a controversial book. Uh, I do not deny that, but we don't want that to scare us off of it or make us trepidatious to, to 
walk through it. Uh, but I, I want to establish a couple principles that will help us as we go through this book. And there may be, I would challenge you to make sure you're not just assuming that your way of reading Genesis is exactly right, uh, that, but that you really seek to hear it as God communicated it, that you receive it as God gave it. That, that should be the task of all of us, okay? Uh, we need to read it as its author intended. That's very important for us. That's how, what did the author mean to say? Both the human author and the divine author. So I'm going to give you three quick principles of interpretation I'll try to make them quick. I'll say that. Uh, three principles of interpretation as we read this book, as we hear it read, as we hear it preached, three principles that will be foundational for how we approach this book over the next nine months. And they're all going to start with read them as blank. Okay, So first one that th is that we should read these words as history. I read these words as history. And that may feel like it doesn't even need to be said, but uh, it does in today's world need to be said that we need to read Genesis 1 through 11 as history. Right? It has become increasingly common in our day, and I think this has always been, but it feels maybe more common in our day, for people to pick these very chapters, 1 through 11 in particular, and even if they think chapters 12 and on, are actually recording real people and real things that happen to them, it's become very common for people to look at chapter 11 and earlier as being some sort of like pseudo-history or kind of like myth or legend or those sorts of things. They'll, people will argue that these were not actual events. These were not actual things that happened, but these were stories. These were a way they were trying to poetically or, or metaphorically explain how we came to be. They'll, they'll talk about them as myth or legend. Just as one example, and I don't need to say the name of this person, but uh, he's been a professor at a Christian university, not at Grace, um, but as, as a uh, provost now at a university, he, amongst other writings, just he writes this, just very matter-of-factly. He says, There was no Edenic garden, nor trees of life and knowledge, nor a serpent that spoke, nor a worldwide flood in which all living things, save those on a giant boat, were killed by God. And you can kind of hear the sarcasm even in it that save those uh, who were on a giant boat. Like this is common for people to think this all, they, it's not that they don't think it's from God, but they don't think that it's history. They don't think that it's actually recording real things, real events that actually happened. They would think, and maybe some of you have been prone to think this, they would read stories of like Adam and Eve and Enoch and Abel and Noah and all these people. They would read them almost like we would talk about people or characters characters today like Paul Bunyan or John Henry or Pecos Bill that I learned about when I was a kid in school that people would think about them as like tall tales they're these legends that have just developed but that have no basis of reality and I will acknowledge up front there are some things that are strange in the book of Genesis that feels strange to us. We're going to, in the next couple months, we're going to read about a man who was created from dust and a woman who was created from a rib, right? We're going to read about a talking snake. We're going to read about angels with flaming swords that keep people out of the Garden of Eden. We're going to read about Enoch, a man who walks with God and doesn't die. We're going to read about how human civilization descends from a single couple, right? About people who lived 900 years plus on the face of the earth. We're going to read about a worldwide flood. We're going to read about things that seem bizarre and foreign or impossible to the world. 
But what I want to encourage us to do is to remember that we need to read the Bible on its own terms. Like we don't get to just read the Bible however we see fit. If God spoke in a certain way and communicated certain things, we are to take God at his word. We are to read it as he gave it to us. And there's good reason to read this as history. And I could tell you some more about this, but a couple quick reasons of why you can read it as history, things that actually took place. There's a structure to the book of Genesis. If the, there's this phrase in Hebrew uh, that it's the word toledot. It's, it's like this phrase you see again and again in English. The first time is in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, these are the generations of fill in the blank. Uh, then you get a little bit further in Genesis. It says, these are the generations of fill in the blank. We're going to hit some of those even in chapters 1 through 11. And then they keep continue coming after that, chapter 12 and beyond. And Moses, it's like he's telling us, I'm putting these stories together. And chapter 12 on is not different. Like that all of these things are generations. They're the backstory. They're the explanation of how these people came to be, how these things happen. Another reason, look at the genealogies in the Bible. They're important. Sometimes we get in our Bible reading, we just skip over those like, this is boring. I'm just going to skim through this. There are several places in the Bible where there's genealogies that go all the way from Adam to whatever character they're trying to get to, whether it's King David, like in 1 Chronicles, or whether you get to Luke chapter 3. We read sometimes around Christmas, Luke records genealogies from Adam to Jesus, or more accurately, from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Like he is linking all of the human race with seamlessly, uh, that these are not, there's no pivot from fictional uh, Paul Bunyan type of characters to now real people. He's talking about real people throughout. But the clearest reason you should read it as history is because later biblical authors did. Like, read the rest of the Bible. Don't just read Genesis in isolation. Read the rest of the Bible. And the authors who are inspired by the Spirit who come after Moses refer to what Moses wrote as actual history. Jesus himself did this, right? He quotes Genesis 2 when he's teaching about marriage and making a point about the permanence of marriage. The apostle Peter does this. Read 2 Peter. He talks about the days of Noah and talks about the future and how those days are just going to be like the days of Noah. The Apostle Paul builds his entire theology on the reality of Adam, right? He'll call Jesus literally the second Adam, and he'll talk about how all humans, including everyone in this tent in this field today, descend from Adam and are guilty because of his sin. Paul believed these were real people, right? And if we have to choose between people uh, who are modern scholars and the biblical authors themselves and how they read Genesis, again, I will go with the biblical authors, that they read this as history. So read it as history. The second thing, though, this one is shorter, is to make sure as you read Genesis that you also read these words as literature, that they are history. They're not less than history, but they're also not less than literature. Uh, These chapters were not written, and you'll see this very clearly even in how it started. They weren't written like a scientific textbook, right? They weren't written in the way that we maybe write history today. They weren't written in that same manner. There is a poetic nature to some of it. There is a prose feel to it. Uh, But Moses was writing, he was telling this story in such a way, not just to get facts right, although he was, but also for the story to stick, for it to have rhythm, for it to have memorability to it. He was was telling it as a story. He was telling it as literature. Uh, Genesis, it communicates doctrine and reality in an artful way, one commentator said, and I, I agree with that. 
the precision, in our day, I'll say it this way, the precision, exactness, thoroughness that we maybe long for in our day, like if we were going to write the story of creation, God doesn't owe that to us, right? We may long for explanations that Moses doesn't give, right? We may have uh, itches that Moses doesn't scratch for us, like things that God leaves unresolved, unknown things to us. God may not tell the story of creation exactly the way that we want him to, but that does not make God a bad storyteller, right? In fact, he is, in fact, a great storyteller, the best storyteller. He told it exactly how he wanted it to be told. We have what we're supposed to know about the creation story, and we need to not be so focused in our scientific age on learning and answering questions that the scriptures don't try to answer that we miss, I would say, the grandeur and the wonder and the majesty that's in Genesis 1, that's in Genesis 2, that's in all these chapters that follow. Let's listen to what God has said, not just always be craving for more than what God has said, right? So that we need to read it as history. We need to read it as literature. This last one's going to be the most important, though, is that when you come to Genesis, that you read these words, you listen to these words read and preached, you read them as prologue, that you read them knowing that there is more story that comes after it right? There's much more that God has said. We're going to look at the first 11 chapters of the Bible. There's an immense amount that comes later. The things we're going to see in Genesis 1 through 11, it's like there are all these threads that God just kind of pokes through uh, the the fabric, and he's going to then start pulling them out uh, slowly but surely throughout the rest of the Bible as he weaves this beautiful story. But much of it starts right here, even in chapter 1, uh, even in chapters 1 through 11, all these threads start to get poked through that go all the way to the very end of the Bible. Sometimes read the last two chapters of the Bible and see how similar of terms there are to the first couple chapters of the Bible. Like there is overlap, there's continuity, and all throughout it, there is story that unfolds. There's one commentator I heard who called these beginning chapters of Genesis, he called them the seed plot of the Bible. That's like there's all these seeds just there, right there on the surface that start growing slowly as the Bible unfolds over time. God did not just set out on the task of creating the universe and then just wing it, right? Like God knew what he was doing from day one. He knew what the story was that he was going to tell, and he's setting the stage for what will follow here in Genesis 1 through 11, right? Before God created and its single molecule, before he created a single atom of the universe, he had fully, I would suggest to you, based on scripture, he had fully written the entire script of human history. Before he said, let there be light, he knew that Jesus would say on the cross, it is finished, right? God knew all of this. He's writing it. He's not just kind of setting it in motion. We'll see what happens. Like he is saying from the beginning, this is reality. This is who I am. This is who you are. And he's like anticipating for us what's going to unfold in the sending of Jesus. That's where history is all bending. From day one is toward the sending of Jesus, right? Everything that starts here finds its culmination in Jesus. All of this is prologue to the story of Jesus and him coming to rescue us. We're going to see that God created, right? That he created the heavens and the earth here in verse 1. When you get to Revelation 21, it says that what is, what is coming to be then is a new heaven and a new earth, 
right? Uh, there's a creation in Genesis 1, then there's new creation that God eventually works, and the sending of Jesus, right? There is a first Adam that we're going to start to meet slowly, especially as we get to chapter 2. We're going to meet the first Adam, the first human being, but guess what? That's an anticipation of what Paul later will, refer, of who Paul will later refer to as the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that he was sent to be a representative of humanity, uh, to live on our behalf in ways that Adam never did. We're going to see Adam be tempted by a serpent, right? And he fails. That's like this thread that gets popped through here. When Jesus finally comes as God the Son incarnate, he's going to be tempted by that same being, right? But instead of disobeying and defying God, he is actually going to obey his heavenly father, right? So that thread gets pulled through in an even better way. We're going to see here in Genesis chapter 3 uh, that after Adam and Eve sin, that they are exiled out of the Garden of Eden, right? They're sent out and those angels are there saying, stay out, stay away from God. You are not allowed to be near him. But when Jesus comes, and by him dying on the cross, taking our judgment, the ones who should be cast away from God, by Jesus bearing our sin upon the cross, it's like God has reversed that exile and said, come back to me. Like, welcome back in those angels with the swords, gone, come back to me. Return to me, I will forgive you, I will receive you, right? We're going to read about the flood and this ark that floated on top of the flood as God's judgment was coming down upon humanity for their sin. There were some inside of this ark who were spared from God's judgment, right? What we're going to see even more true is when Jesus comes for us, there is still a final judgment that is going to come down upon all of humanity someday. But there are those who are not in a ship, but it's those who are in the person of Jesus who will be spared from God's judgment and God's wrath, right? There's all these images that are baked into these chapters that will come true in bigger, better fashion through the sending and the work of Jesus. We're going to see even by the time we get to chapter 11, the Tower of Babel story, we're going to see God scatters humans all over the planet, right? And confuses our language and pits us against each other in some way where there's division. But in the person of Jesus, all of us who are united with him by faith, no matter what ethnicity we are, no matter what language we speak, no matter what air we live in, we are brought back together. And so there's this scattering that happens at the end of Genesis 11, but a regathering that comes through the person of Jesus. God knew what he was doing when he started telling this story. Like he's setting the stage for the arrival of Jesus and the work of Jesus. There's a, a man named A.W. Pink, one of the greatest names of theologians that I like, A.W. Pink. Uh, he wrote this. He said, what a marvelous proof is all of the, all this that I was just talking about. What marvelous proof it is of divine authorship. Who but the one who knows the end from the beginning could have embodied in germ form what's afterwards expanded and amplified in the rest of the Bible. What unequivocal demonstration that there was one superintending mind directing the pens of all who wrote the later books of Holy Scripture. I love that. Like God knew from the beginning everything he was going to do and he's setting the stage for us as we read these chapters. And we're going to try hard as we go through these chapters to help you establish or reestablish a worldview that is right that you understand who you are, you understand who God is, you understand sin, you understand grace, all these sorts of things. We're going to try to help you build a worldview or rebuild it. But I want you to hear me very clearly on this first Sunday is to know that we are after much more, desirous of much more than just you having a right worldview. Satan has a right worldview. 
Like he knows the truth better than you. Like he knows the truth better than me. And so my goal, any goal of any man who gets up here to preach from these scriptures is going to be much more and deeper than just getting you to know the right things about the world, to know the right things about God, to know the right things about the future. Our deepest desire is to see you united with God's Son, Jesus Christ. Everything that we're going to come to in Genesis, we're going to turn again and again because God turns it again and again to the person of Jesus. God the Son, this one that he sent to live among us and to die for us upon the cross, to take our sin upon himself and be crushed in our place. We want you to know him, that there can be forgiveness of your sin through him. We want you to know that he was raised from the dead, that he was brought to life never to die again that Sunday morning long ago, and that God offers to each and every one of us in this tent, in this field, he offers to every one of us forgiveness of sin, and he offers return to him. He offers eternal life with him and his people if we will turn from our sin and place our trust in that son, Jesus Christ one who is crucified for us and raised for us. That is what we want you to know. Because you can know all the right things. You could have the right worldview and you could be saviorless, right? You could be detached from God and still know right things about God. What we want is that these would take deep root in your heart, not just in your mind. And so as we do go through this book, may we have that as our end, have that as our aim. You know, we believe wilder things than a talking snake, Right? We believe wilder things than a man being made from dust. We believe wilder things than a sinful Noah walking out of a recently landed ark on Mount Ararat, right? We believe wilder, bigger, grander things than that because we believe in a resurrected man who walked out of a tomb never to die again, right? If you stack up what is weirder and more supernatural, Genesis 1 through 11, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is weirder in some sense. It's bigger, it's grander, it is more wonderful than this even. New creation is even better than creation. Like this, we must understand this and not be embarrassed by texts like this because if we're embarrassed by texts like this, we will be embarrassed by the story of the resurrection, right? We will be, and we must believe it all. When God speaks, we believe what he says because God tells a better story than we do, right? God tells a better story than you do. God tells a better story than any movie director or author that you like. And our story is not ours to tell anyways, right? We are not authors of our own story, no matter what we like to believe as Americans, right? We don't just get to craft our own story and determine what's true and determine where we're going and determine what significance that is not ours to determine. We are not authors of our own story, nor are we merely an audience of God telling a story that we just watch in a detached way, that we just kind of watch like a movie or something that has no effect on us. We are much more than just an audience of the story that God is telling, we are actors in God's story, right? We are part of God's story. We are creatures that God has made. And Lord willing, we are people that he is saving to be his children forever. And our story, the one we are actors in, the one that God is writing, it finds its beginning right here, right? Every story has a backstory and every backstory has significance. And your story, my story, our story starts right here in Genesis 1. God has given us minds, right? He's given us the ability to study things and research things and inquire and ask questions and seek for truth. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we must be told the truth by our Creator, right? 
We don't just craft it ourselves. We don't just discover it ourselves. We must be told the truth by our Creator, and we must be humble enough to listen to Him as He tells us, right? Uh, Even things that may bristle us or things that may confuse us, or we may want to know more of the story that He doesn't say. When God tells the story, we are to be humble enough to listen to Him, believe what He says, and to follow our cues, right? We must go all the way back to the beginning and listen to Him tell our story.